You can turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is where we'll be. And while you're turning there, before I get to that text that I'll be preaching from this morning, <clears throat> I wanted to talk about what we'll be preaching from next year. Because uh, I'm really excited about this. Uh, you can probably tell because uh, I awkwardly just like stuck this in some of you all's hands, uh, handing this out. I hope some of you got this. If you didn't, you can pick it up. Um, but I'm really excited about this. I want you all on board with this. Okay, everybody who can hear my voice, I want you on board with this. Uh, and so if you don't, didn't get one of these, make sure you get one before the new year or you can just look online. Um, why I'm so excited about this is because I believe the word of God is powerful to transform lives. I really believe that. When people really commit to hearing from God and, and listening with open hearts and open ears, because it's God's own word to us, the Bible is. And I have a deep desire in my heart to see every person at Bethel develop a daily habit of communion with God through his word. And so to work toward that end, to actually try to do that, we're doing something really cool. Beginning next year, we will begin a plan to read through the whole New Testament together in unity as a church. And we'll have a unique reading plan uh, that we've designed that, that, so that the books uh, to go back and forth between epistles and gospels and, and, and narrative and didactic teaching so that it's interesting, but also so that they complement one another. And, but here's a really cool thing is we'll also preach through that same plan. So that we'll all, a weekly reminder and encouragement and help to be committed to this practice and building this habit. Each Sunday we'll be preaching from a text that we all read that previous week. A weekly reminder. It's, it's awesome. We're calling it the fellowship of the Spirit's sword. Because we will be a true fellowship, partnering together in unity to become people of the word of God which the word of God tells us is the spirit's sword. And the more I think about this, the more excited I get because this will be an incredible endeavor of unity for us. It will. To think about God speaking to each one of us as individuals in the same exact way, on the same day. You think about how God could use that and what he'll be doing among us. If you already have a habit of daily reading, that's great, but, but please join us in this as an expression of unity and support for those who are just getting started. And if you usually read through the whole Bible in a year, I want to ask you, if your conscience allows, to do this plan with us instead, to use that extra time that you'll have to reflect a bit more on the details, meditate more, pray more as you read. It could be a different kind of blessing for you. But most importantly, if you don't have a daily habit in God's word, please try this with us. Please. It's only five chapters a week. So you'll read one chapter a day. And then there's two catch-up days in that week. So that if you get behind, you can use those two catch-up days. And then if you don't need those two catch-up days, you can read Psalms on those days. And if you read the designated Psalms, you'll also read through the whole book of Psalms in this next year as well. And so we'll have this unique reading plan on our website. We'll have it here in this print thing. This is the first six months. So we'll print off another one for the next six months. So you got to stick around. Um, and, uh, but I'm, I'm praying a big prayer for this next year. Some of you have already know this, have already been praying it with me. I'm praying that every person who's a part of Bethel will develop a daily habit of communion with God through his word. And I hope you'll pray that with me. And I hope you'll be a part of the answer to that prayer. So, 
Now, for our text this morning, 2 Samuel 7. Now to the sermon. Uh, starting in the second half of verse 11. 2 Samuel 7, 11. Uh, here's where we'll start. The Lord declares to you, that this is uh, the prophet Nathan talking to uh, David. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and, your rest, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Let's pray. Our Father, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh, Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. So our series through Advent this year has been asking, why Christmas? Why did this incredible thing happen? And we've answered uh, at one level because it fulfills the scripture. And at another level, it fulfills our deepest needs. But not only our deepest needs, but our deepest longings. Because often our longings uh, and our desires are usually, um, our longings usually arise out of our needs. Don't they? Because we get hungry. Why? Because we need food to survive. Um, And this is true of our hearts and our souls as well as our bodies. And so far through the series, so good, right? Because we, most of us agree that uh, people really need, we really need and desire what a prophet and a priest have to offer. We need a word from God. We need a way to God. And we want to hear from him. And we want to be near to him. And when it comes to the prophet and priest that fulfills these roles, that, that fulfills our deepest desires, right? But when it comes to a king, we may wonder if that's something we really want. Do we really want to be ruled? Do we really want someone to lord over us? Do we really want someone over us imposing his will on us? And so this idea that Christmas fulfills our deepest needs and our deepest desires because the incarnate Christ perfectly fulfills these roles for, uh, for us, this idea might be met with a little bit more skepticism once we hit the idea of kings. I mean, after all, we're Americans. We rebel after, uh, against kings, right? We revolt. But I want to argue that we actually do long for a king. We do crave to be ruled. Do you remember in the book of Acts when the apostle Paul stepped into Athens, Greece, and he was taken to the Areopagus and he said, I perceive you are very religious in every way, right? And he looked around, he saw all the altars to the gods that they had, and he even noticed an unknown, an altar to an unknown God. And he he said, you know, just for you to cover your bases. And this God that you don't know, he said, that God is the one true God who made you and made everything. And all these other gods you're worshiping are twisted shadows, and he is the true shining substance. Well, imagine if Paul did that to us. He stepped into our public square and our culture and observed, like he did in in Greece and Athens at the Areopagus, and where he said, I see all your statues to gods, and let me tell you about the unknown God above all gods. 
If Paul did that to us, I think there's probably a few different approaches he could take after seeing what we worship. But one really solid approach would be this. He would say, I can tell by your news and by your online posts and debates and the, and the proliferation and pervasiveness of politics that you are a people who trust in princes and rulers and care deeply about being ruled and how you are ruled and who rules you. So let me introduce you to the ruler you didn't even realize you longed to know. The king above all kings. The one whose kingdom has no end. His reign is one of peace and justice. His power and majesty are unequaled for he is divine. And yet, he welcomes us as brothers because he is one of us. We do need to be ruled because we were made for it. But we also want to be ruled because we were made for it. And this is not new. Remember, you remember in, uh, when the people of Israel were delivered from Egypt and they were brought to the promised land and the people rejected their invisible divine ruler and cried out for a king like them to rule them, a man to rule them. And we judge them a little bit, usually, if we're honest. But we also understand where they're coming from too, don't we, if we're honest? Because of course we want God to be king. He would be the best king. He's, he's powerful and he's perfect. But we also see the appeal of a human king. He's like us. He's gone through the blood, sweat, and tears of this life. We kind of want both. We want God as king. We want a man king. Sounds crazy, but it'd be ideal if he could somehow be the both at the same time. But that can't happen. Or can it? This is why Christmas, why the eternal son of God took on flesh to be the perfect king, to rule over us as, rule over us the images of God as the perfect and complete image of God. He was born to be our king. And this is the hope of the scriptures, that the scriptures held out for us, this seed, uh, the seed of which was sown in the Davidic covenant, which we just read in 2 Samuel. It, and remember when, when uh, Josh read that text, this, this coming from the, the stump of Jesse, this branch coming from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was King David's father, right? So this is this promise of the scriptures. And in this, in this text that we read in 2 Samuel, God's covenant with David, this is his promise of a descendant of David who would rule as king and it, it, with an everlasting reign and dominion, and throne, an eternal kingdom. When we call him Christ, when we call Jesus Christ, that's not his last name, this is what we're saying. We're saying he's king. Follow closely as I unravel a few layers of meaning here, because Christ is the Greek translation of the word Messiah. And Messiah means anointed one. And anointing is referring to a ritual by which people were publicly set apart for a specific God-appointed role, such as king. David was anointed as king. And the anointed one became a title in Israel for this coming king that was promised through the Davidic covenant. The one from the line of David who would reign over God's people perfectly and permanently. The appointed one, the anointed one, the Messiah the Christ, it means the king, the promised, perfect, eternal king. When we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus, the king, 
which is the accusation that was leveraged against him whenever he was by those people who were trying to get him killed, if you remember. In John 19, Pilate sought to release Jesus, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend because everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So Jesus claiming to be king was electric and subversive and had real consequences. And it had consequences for those early Christians who confessed Jesus as Lord when only Caesar could be confessed as Lord. It really means something that Jesus is Christ, that Jesus is our King. And we are blessed beyond measure that we have such a King as Jesus, the King of Christmas, who, the King who condescended who grasped not after greatness, but humbled himself and gave himself in humility. It's this one who reigns over us. He is our ruler. And this is why Christmas is such good news. And this passage in 2 Samuel helps us understand the biblical context for understanding Jesus as our king. Because King David, he looks around his wonderful home that he's living in. It talks about his cedar home. Cedar must have been really fancy back then. So he's looking at his cedar home and he's enjoying the peace of the kingdom because of the, the, the rivalry with the Philistines has died down. And he has an idea. He thinks I'm experiencing such great blessings from God living in this beautiful home. And God is out there in that portable tent we call the tabernacle. I'm going to build a house for God. An awesome house for God. It's greater than that tabernacle. And so he runs to Nathan the prophet, who, and he tells him his idea. And Nathan's like, yeah, that's a great idea. And he also thinks it's a great idea. He says, go for it. I'll support you. But then that night, God comes to Nathan in a vision. And he says, Nathan, tell David. The answer is actually no. And so Nathan has to break this news to David. But more than just an, it's more than just a no, though, because Nathan says God doesn't want you to build a house for him because he is going to build a house for you. And the throne of your house will endure forever. From your line, David, will come the Messiah, the king of kings who will reign on your throne everlastingly. You want to build God a house? No, because God's going to build you a house. And God wants to be very clear in this, that he's not blessing David because of what David has done. In fact, he's blessing him despite what he's done because other passages say, passages say he couldn't build the temple because he was a man of violence and blood. God is setting himself apart from the false gods who bless the kings who build them temples after they've built them a temple. He's making clear that, that his promised king will come through David because of grace. He's the God who blesses people into greatness, not blesses them because they're great. And this promise is what's known as the Davidic covenant. A covenant is God's commitment. It's his self-made guidelines for how he will act. And the most important part of this is the prophetic promise of his son who will reign. And so as is, the, as is the case with prophecy, some of you probably read a little past where I read in that text, there is a more immediate application and there's an application beyond that. So the first meaning of this prophecy here is Solomon, right? Because the, the, but then there's this, a second greater meaning, which is Christ. We know this because there's things in this prophecy that apply to Solomon that don't apply to Christ. And there's things that apply to Christ that don't apply to Solomon. Like when he says that this king will sin, 
and be disciplined. That applies to Solomon, but not to Christ. And when he says his reign will be forever, well, that's not true of Solomon. But it is true of Christ. This is not just a Christian reinterpretation of this text either. Even the Israelites saw this. They saw that this covenant promise was not fulfilled fully by Solomon. And they hoped in the one that they came to call the son of David. This was a title for the Messiah that they had hoped in. The son of David. There would, that would bring the full fulfillment of this prophecy. And this is why in the Gospels you see sometimes people crying out to Jesus, Son of David. Like Bartimaeus, the, the, the blind beggar, if you remember him, he cried out, Son of David. And then right after that encounter, whenever Jesus goes into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry when he rides on the donkey and all the people are shouting what? Hosanna to the Son of David. Though most of them anticipated this son of David to probably just be some kind of extraordinary man, they probably didn't expect him to also be God. But that's not because they weren't told. It's only because such a thing is hard for us to wrap our minds around. Because what does our favorite Christmas prophecy tell us? In Isaiah 9, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. So far, so good. But it goes on, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, then what? Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This child born to us as a son of David will be mighty God and will reign on the throne forever with justice and peace. J.R. Packer has this great passage in his book, Knowing God, uh, where he says that people have all kinds of difficulties believing in the Christian faith for various reasons and different parts of Christianity, different parts of theology. But he says that it's sad that so many people make their faith harder than it needs to be by putting the difficulties in the wrong places. Because he says the real difficulty, the real diff place that you should place the difficulty is in this mystery with which the gospel confronts us. It, the, the greatest difficulty doesn't lie in the miracles he performed or in his immaculate conception or in the atonement or on the, uh, on the cross or in his resurrection from the, from the dead even. Because all those make sense if you overcome the greatest difficulty. The real staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God made man. It's here that the, the, the thing, at the thing that happened at the first Christmas, that the profoundest, most unfathomable depths of Christian revelation lie. But once the incarnation is grasped as a reality, these other difficulties dissolve. Because if Jesus was the same person as the eternal word, the Father's agent in creation, it's no wonder that fresh acts of creative power marked his coming into this world and his life in it and his exit from it. It's not strange that he, the author of life, should rise from the dead. And if the immortal son of God really did submit to taste death, it's not a strange thing that such a death should have a significance for us and our doomed race. Once we grant that Jesus was divine, it becomes unreasonable to find difficulty in any of this. It's all a piece and hangs together completely. The incarnation is in itself the unfathomable mystery. 
but it makes sense of everything else in the New Testament. And Packer is so right when he says all of this. If we grant this incredible truth, everything else falls into place and makes a lot of sense, including his role as king. Because if he is God-made man, then he ought to be the one to rule us. His life would show us humanity perfected. His commands should determine the shape of our lives. He is the king we all longed for, but hardly dared to hope for. Such a king seems too good to be true, too good to be possible. And the daring hope of Christmas, it invites us to believe that such a king is not only possible, but actual. All authority in heaven and earth is given to him. And he promises to be with you always, even to the end of the age. If you hear his call, and submit to him as king. And pledge your allegiance to him alone. Because you will pledge your allegiance somewhere. You will pledge it elsewhere if you don't pledge it to him. And he knows that only he will rule his subjects with perfect love. And in line with the way that they were made. All rebellion to his reign is destructive to the rebels. And he loves the rebels. It's because of his great love that he calls us to submit to him and serve him. We are his, whether we acknowledge it or not. It's just the truth. But when we do acknowledge it, we become his in a deeper and greater way. We are doubly his. We are not only his because he made us, but also because he bought us with the price of his own life. And to make his kingship even more unimaginably great. He does not merely have servants or subjects. His castle is as big as his whole kingdom. And he invites us to live in his home with him as his own family, brothers and sisters and co-heirs with him. Jesus is our king. And this is good news. This is the answer to why Christmas so what does Christ as king mean for you and for me? What does it mean about him that he is the king? Because none of us have had an earthly king in the same sense that the biblical people use that word. So it might be a little foreign to us. So let's say a few simple points about what it means. And the first thing I want to point out is that it means authority. The king was one who had the one who had the most authority in the kingdom. He had the definitive and final say over anybody else. And on the face of it, this is probably the least attractive part of all this, of Jesus being king, because it means Jesus has authority over you. You are no longer able to determine your own way. He does that. And we've inherited a long philosophical tradition that says we are fundamentally choosers, choice makers. And this is where freedom and flourishing is found. We get to choose. We get to determine our own destinies, our own way, our own identity. So for us, seeing authority as a good thing, it's going to take some unlearning. It's going to take the miracle of humility. But most importantly, it will take someone in authority who wields it well and shows us it actually is a good thing in his hands and even a freeing thing for him to call the shots rather than for us to. And that is who Jesus is for us. So if we consider him, 
It will remove the obstacle of our obstinacy because we are obstinate. We in our fallen sinful state rebel against authority. Think back to when you were a kid. I think God gives us all at least one moment, probably several like this to give us insight into our own hearts. Were you ever about to do something? Like for me, it was take out the dog. And you're about to do it of your own accord. And then one of your parents tells you to do that very same thing before you got the chance to do it on your own. And then that thing that you were just about to do with few to no problems becomes something you would hate to do with all your little heart. You, you would rather clean up the dog's mess off the floor than take out that dog now. Why? Because doing something you choose to do suits your own will, your own sinful, selfish, prideful heart much more than doing something out of obedience. Obedience is no fun. There's no glory in it. There's no freedom in it. But what if we've been fed a lie? What if we, cra- what if we have a disorder that craves disorder and it's being stoked? There was a TV show that started when I was in college called My Strange Addiction. And it was a weird, cringy, freak show style attraction that people couldn't stop talking about. And many of the strange addictions were people just eating stuff you just shouldn't eat. And like baby diapers and couch cushions, you know? One medical professional who watched the show thought that many of these people probably had a disorder known as PICA syndrome, where people crave non-food items with zero nutritional value, sometimes even things that are dangerous, and they, keep, they feel unable to stop. And it seems more like a nightmare to me than something we should be entertained by, honestly. But my point is this, what if we have a disease like that? where we crave dryer sheets instead of braised short ribs? What if we hate, what if this thing we hate called authority can actually be the doorway to health and life and joy and peace? There's this great little anecdote that I think about between the great reformer Martin Luther and his friend Philip Melanchthon, where Philip was much more prone to be anxious about all the honestly really stressful things they were encountering through the Reformation. And Martin Luther would lay his hand on his friend's shoulder and say, let Philip cease to rule the world. And I love that because there is peace when you can let go of the reins. And though he was applying it to anxiety and fear, I think that same truth can be applied much more broadly. There are so many things that we take into our hands that just shouldn't be there. So many decisions we simply don't need to make or fret over because they're made for us. We can simply trust. You don't need to decide whether to lie in your business dealings. Jesus has made that decision for you. You don't need to decide whether to get divorced. You don't need to decide whether to have sex outside of marriage or whether to marry that unbeliever. Jesus has made those decisions for you. You don't need to decide whether to consistently give away some of your money. Jesus has made that decision for you. You don't need to decide whether you should forgive that person. You don't need to decide whether you should apologize for wrongdoing. Jesus has made those decisions for you. You don't need to decide whether you should pray today. Jesus has made that decision for you. You don't need to decide whether to air your grievances publicly or whether you should speak bitterly or respectfully. Jesus has made those decisions for you. You don't need to decide whether you are worthy of love. 
You don't need to decide how or whether you can make yourself good enough. Jesus has determined these things for you. You don't need to decide your own unique identity, who you are, who you're going to be. Who am I? How can I make myself? Jesus has made the decision for you of who you are. You don't need to fret over so many decisions you fret over. Let yourself cease to rule the world. Let the king rule your life. Let his authority bring you peace. Humble yourself before him. When you really see him for who he is, it will be easy because he is so great in majesty. And this is the next thing about Christ as king because to be king is to be majestic and great. The king is the greatest person in the kingdom. That's a part of what a king is. He's the greatest person in the kingdom. In our celebrity culture, Oddly enough, we actually get a sense of this. Even though we don't have kings, we all have someone who, if we were in their presence, it would automatically and uh, paradoxically make us feel special and humbled at the same time. We can probably think of that person. I already know I, I, I already referenced the long J.I. Packer passage, but I'm going to do it again because he's actually one of those people for me. If he were alive, if I was in his presence, I would feel special. That was in J.I. Packer's presence and I'd feel humbled. Well, it's J.I. Packer. But uh, so, and also some of you know, my wife is pregnant, Audrey. She's, uh, and I, I was convinced that we were having a little boy. And so I uh, had his name all picked out. I was going to name him after C.S. Lewis and J.I. Packer. He was going to be Clive and L. Carr. It was going to be awesome. But alas, we found out we're having a girl, so I don't get to use that name. Uh, but back when I thought I would get to use that name, I was getting all excited and I kept, uh, I read a, a biography of J.I. Packer and I reread some of my favorite of his books. And now all my enthusiasm has to go somewhere rather than in the name of my kid. So it's coming to you guys. Um, <coughs> So uh, when we talk about the majesty of the king and what that means for us, in Knowing God Again, J.A. Packer has this great passage on the reality of knowing and being known by this great king and how it ought to affect us. He says, imagine we are going to be introduced to someone whom we feel above us, whether in rank or intellectual distinction or professional skill or personal sanctity or in some other respect. The more conscious we, conscious we are of our own inferiority, the more we shall feel that our part is simply to attend to this person respectfully and let him take the initiative in the conversation. Think of meeting the Queen of England or the President of the United States. We would like to get to know this exalted person, but we fully realize that the matter is for him to decide, not us. If he confines himself to courteous formalities with us, we may be disappointed, but we don't feel like we're able to complain. After all, we had no claim on his friendship. But imagine if instead he starts at once to take us into his confidence, to tell us frankly what is on his mind in matters of common concern. And if he goes on to join us, uh, to invite us to join him in particular undertakings that he has planned and asks us to make ourselves permanently available for this kind of collaboration whenever he needs us, then we shall feel enormously privileged and will make a world of difference to our general outlook on life. I mean, if life seemed unimportant and dreary hitherto, it will not seem so anymore. Now that this great man has enrolled us among his personal assistants, here is something to write home about and something to live up to. 
the action of God in taking Joseph, if you remember that story in, in, in uh, Genesis, taking Joseph from prison to become Pharaoh's prime minister, that's a picture of what he does to every Christian. From being Satan's prisoner, you find yourself transferred to a position of trust in the service of God himself. At once, life is transformed. And whether being a servant is a matter for shame or for pride, it depends on whose servant one is. Many have said the pride that they felt in rendering personal service to Sir Winston Churchill during World War II. How much more should it matter for pride and glory to know and serve the Lord of heaven and earth? The greatness of our king is good news because he is this majestic one. And this majestic one wants to know us and be known by us. We've all seen like, I've seen and been gifted like little uh, jokey sayings painted on the knickknacks about how God thinks we're a pain in the butt. And I've heard people comment about how God's got bigger things to worry about than this or that in their life. And these comments come from people who have a generic sense of God's greatness without a comprehensive view of his character. Because a superficial perspective on God assumes that he must be dismissive of small things like us and our problems if he's so big. But that actually underestimates how great he actually is. Because he's so great that he cares about each and every one of us at each and every moment of our lives. He is a king whose reign is so thoroughgoing that he will rule and it will extend over every action and every thought of his people. He is too great not to care about the small things. And this great one invites you into his life to share your time and your life with him as he does with you. Last J.I. Packer quote, I promise. He says, what makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. And this the Christian has in a way that no other person has. For what higher, more exalted, more compelling goal can there be than to know God? Christ, our King, is great enough to make life worthwhile. He's big enough to capture our imagination and lay hold of our allegiance. And, and this, sec, this, this, his greatness, his majesty, is the second thing about his, his kingship. So his being king means he has authority. It means he's majestic. And the third thing is it means he has a kingdom. And this may seem obvious, but it's worth stating that a kingdom is not just an individual relationship. It's a whole group of people spanning generations and classes. It's those with a shared culture and a shared king. Under a, united under a common authority and allegiance. Christ taught us to pray for his kingdom to come here as it is in heaven. And his kingdom, to take cues from that same prayer, is where his name is hallowed, meaning revered as holy, and where his will is done. We are a people who sanctify the king's name and seek our king's will. Each church is an embassy of heaven. Each member, an emissary. 
And we should note the difference between an embassy and an immigrant. Immigrants assimilate to greater or lesser degrees, especially second and third generations. But an embassy is there with the distinct and direct purpose to remain distinct. An embassy is an officially sanctioned outpost of one nation inside the borders of another nation. And this world that we live in, in many ways, is a different country than our home country. The Bible tells us our citizenship is in heaven with Christ. And so here we don't, we're not to be immigrants assimilating into this foreign world. We are to be emissaries of the coming kingdom. And as, a, as, as part of that, to form embassies of that kingdom, the kingdom of God. And we pray for that kingdom to come here now, today, more and more, and one day to fully invade and overtake And so as we live out this prayer that he taught us to pray, not just sending empty words out into the ether, but actually letting our prayer affect our life, we live as ambassadors. And this involves our embassy, a gospel outposts. Inside our embassy, one should hear the king's words declared and experience the culture of our true country. Humble hunger for righteousness, peacemaking love, And we're united in this, brought together under this banner. A personal relationship with Jesus is necessary and incredible. But we are to participate in his kingdom, to be a part of his kingdom. And this is why he and his apostles are so concerned with how we relate to one another. Because he doesn't want dissension in his kingdom. How, How does a divided kingdom reflect on the king? We live for his glory and honor. The world will know he is king when we live like a kingdom that is like no other that the world has seen. A kingdom radically reshaped by the love of our king. A kingdom that is not merely human. Because our king who is among us is not merely human. This king who reigns over us is the son of God. The king who conquered death who has all authority in heaven and on earth, and he is with us always. So we don't build his kingdom. He does that. But we are called to live in alignment with the truth that when we placed our faith in Christ, as Colossians tells us, when we swore our ultimate allegiance to him alone as king, at that moment, we were transferred out of the domain of darkness and into his kingdom, the kingdom of the beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Why Christmas? Because we need this kind of king. Give him your total allegiance today and become a part of the free people of the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for Christmas. Thankful for our unbelievable king, And thankful for the grace to believe it. We hope in your kingdom. We pray for you to bring it to earth as it is in heaven. So help us to submit to your authority. And to be joyfully humbled by your greatness. And this Christmas to celebrate the birth of our king. As a new people in him. And we pray with him. With our ever present King Jesus. Amen.